Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is professor of philosophy and author Maisha Cherry. Maisha's work focuses on emotions and attitudes in public life. Her latest book is The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. And today, we talk about rage as a tool, about moralizing emotions, and the ways that allies can get in the way. The Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you love this show and want to be a part of our exclusive community, The Stacks Pack, join us on Patreon. You get access to our very bookish Discord channel, Stacks Pack only bonus episodes, and anyone who joins before December 1st gets the Stacks Reading Tracker for 2022. There are a lot more perks to be had, so head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack today. And now I just want to take a quick moment to shout out some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Marielle Pellegrino, Kayla, Lauren Lavian, Christina Colombo, Kim, Courtney Haggerty, Kristen Nelson, and Trinette Fuller. I really could not make the show without all of you and the rest of the Stacks Pack, so thank you. Now it's time for my conversation with Dr. Maisha Cherry. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. We're going to talk about anger and rage. I am joined by Maisha Cherry, who is the author of The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Maisha, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I am personally a large fan of rage. I love a rage. (laughs) I love a rage moment. We can talk more about this, but I, as a Black woman, Cannot tell you how many times I have been angry black woman, you know, accused of such Mm -hmm. things. I was a manager of people for years. And I'm sure as you probably know from your research and expertise in the field, I got in trouble a lot for being mean and angry. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think that's bullshit. But what I love what you've done with your book is you've made the case for rage. So for folks who aren't familiar yet, can you in about 30 seconds or so just kind of share what the book is about? Yeah. So I'm making a case for rage. I mean, that's that's but it's a kind of rage that I'm making a case for. Um, As I kind of describe in the book, there's a variety of angers that we can have, particularly in the context of political injustice. And as opposed to saying, don't be angry at all, 
I'm trying to kind of allow us to focus on the problematic parts, right? And morally criticize those, but kind of preserve the noble or the virtuous form of anger, because I think there's uses for it, particularly political uses for it. And I think it's essential as we fight against racism. Um, So you can be angry. Um, I want us to reclaim that anger. Um, I want us to manage that anger. We can talk about exactly what I mean by that. Um, but don't don't throw it away. Don't be shamed by it. But uh, I want us to reclaim it. And that's the that's the purpose of the spirit of the book. I love this. So the main kind of rage that you talk about in the book is Lordian rage, which is inspired by Audre Lorde and her conversations and essays and, and speeches about rage. So can you sort of explain to folks what that is? Because I think that's sort of going to be the cornerstone of our conversation. So just sort of mm-hmm. to define that and kind of what it looks like and how maybe it manifests a little. Yeah. So I, I remember when I was a guy interested in this topic, as any kind of scholar would do, they go to see what other scholars have written about it. And I'm a philosopher. And so I went to see what feminist philosophers had to say about anger. And I noticed that they kept citing Audre Lorde. Mm her popular essay, The Uses of Anger. Like that was the source. And I'm like, well, let me just go to the source and see what she has to say (laughs) about it. And so as I was thinking about a kind of anti-racist anger that I believe is noble, I couldn't help but go back to that essay because I think she really provides us with a a lot of insight about the kinds of anger that we should reclaim. And so- Thinking about, for those who are familiar with the uses of anger, some of this, these features of the anger that I'm trying to reclaim is going to sound familiar. So Lordian rage is, is aimed at racism, is aimed at race, racial injustice, is aimed at, at racist. And we can talk a little bit more about why that's important, how it differs from the more problematic forms of political rage that can, that can happen. Um, so it's not, it's not targeted towards scapegoats. Mm. Right. It's very specific in its target. Um, Having this rage, it has a particular aim. And so it aims for change. Um, It doesn't aim for elimination of an individual or a group of people, but it aims for change. In in Audre Lorde's terminology, a radical transformation of our world. Mm. It's a rage that is is has a kind of perspective that is inclusive. um, So it's not exclusive. And so think about kind of the end of the essay where Audre Lorde talks about I'm not free until everyone is free. Mm-hmm. And so it has this kind of inclusive perspective. It's like I'm angry at injustice and it's not the injustice that's just impacting me, but injustice that's impacting other people. And this kind of anger is motivational and, you know, supported by social psychology literature. Anger in, in itself is motivational. But because of these other features, it's the kind of motivation that's going to lead you to engage in productive, productive action. And given those particular features and to kind of add to the features that I kind of lay out in the book that kind of goes or strays a little bit more from the uses of anger essay is that it has a, has a, the power to ascribe value to marginalized mm-hmm. lives. It can lead us to engage in productive action. It's compatible with love as opposed to the antithesis of it. And it's because of those features that I think that it has a role to play. Yeah. I'm curious because so in the book you define Lord and rage, and then you also have other types of rage, like white right. rage, narcissistic rage. And those ones are, I think less productive. I mean, I'm loath to like say like bad or good because I think one of the things that I found so interesting about your book is that any form of rage can be productive or destructive, right? Like, but just like other, like, just like there are forms of love that can be, you know? And I think what I found just interesting is like the moralizing of anger and rage and how they're like, people want to say like, oh, this is good or bad uses of anger. And I'm wondering sort of how did this categorization of anger, where did it come from? Who does it serve to make rage like the scapegoat emotion? 
Right. So one of the things that I think that people were doing, that kind of accused people of doing this, is painted anger in broad strokes. Yeah. In which the kind of perception that we think about anger, um, and I even encountered this in, in, in my, my book tour. It's like, what about violence? What about violence? What about violence? Right. This, this initial tendency to think that what it is to be angry is to want to engage in violent behavior, uh, to engage in, in revenge. And it's not to say that no anger can motivate you to do that, but that's just a kind of anger that can right. motivate you to do that. And one of the things that I was trying to figure out as I was writing a book is why is it or how can we give an account of the kinds of anger that will lead to that particular behavior? Well, I began to think, well, who is it directed at? And what is a person thinking about? And who are they imagining? What is the kind of future that they are imagining? What is the kind of assumptions that kind of undergird that particular anger? And I think that once you begin to answer those questions, it will lead you to assess if that anger is productive or not. So let, let me just be a little bit more specific. So you mentioned white rage, for example. Mm-hmm. And I said that um, white rage, as opposed to being targeted at racism, and racism is targeted at scapegoats. Mm-hmm. And anytime you target anything at scapegoats, you're not really interested in solving the problem. Right. Right. It's a distraction. Right. And so, you know, if your emotions is being used to focus on kind of distractive aims, it's not going to focus on the real problems. And that's a problem of that particular anger. And I think that's that what makes it different from from loading and rage. I think another thing that's that's interesting about the features that I was talking about. So when I think about white rage, something that I think I witnessed on January 6th at the Capitol is that when your aim is to eliminate individuals, Mm. When you have hatred towards particular individuals, that's going to impact the kinds of actions that you're going to engage with in that particular anger. So I think that a lot of people who were angry at the Capitol, I mean, they just sought to get rid of people. Right. I mean, they went into the Capitol to kind of assault people, to get rid of people because of this hatred of, of the right, I mean, of the left, et cetera, et cetera. But in contrast that with Audrey Lord, I mean, when your aim is not to like kill people and hate people, but to create a better world, that's going to inform the kinds of actions that mm. you're going to engage in. Mm-hmm. It's going to lead you to run for office as right. opposed to try to assassinate people that are in office, right, right. right? And so what I'm trying to get us to see is that, hey, anger is not one thing. Mm-hmm. It has a variety of, of, of features. Um, and I think that if, if you are engaged or have white rage, for example, you don't have to be stuck there. Right. right. All you have to do is p- perhaps realize who your true target should be. Right. Or perhaps you need to recognize that you can never get justice just for you. You, you know, justice is inclusive of everybody. And perhaps that will allow that person to kind of transition to a more productive rage, which is the rage that I'm defending in the book. Right. OK. You're a philosopher and I get to ask you a question that I feel like maybe I could ask no other person because okay. it's like a little it's a little uh, meta maybe. All right. Who is to say what anyone else's emotion is? Because I was hearing you talk about like violence, right? And like Mm -hmm. there are people who are motivated by anger to violence, but there are also people who are motivated by love, according to them. Like I think of like domestic abusers to violence or jealousy to violence or embarrassment to violence. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder like, how do we even know how to define, like, who gets to define the emotion? Is it the person feeling it? Is it the person on the outside? Like, because that seems political in and of itself. It's very much so. I think in, in my work, what I'm trying to get us to see is that the emotions that we feel is very much racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, it's in, it's, it can be interpreted depending on the social and political positions that we take in society. 
And a lot of that stuff is informed by our racism, whether that's explicit or implicit, our sexism, whether that's explicit or implicit. So you mentioned at the start of, of our conversation about the angry black woman stereotype. Mm-hmm. Well, where did that come from? Right. Right. That's not, oh, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't think about that when you begin to feel emotions from the very first time as an infant. Right. That right. was something that was socialized inside of you. So what that's going to do is that's going to have an impact on what you feel, how you feel, how you think that particular feeling is fitting or not. Um, what you try to cover up in social space is also going to have an impact on the ways in which people treat you, the way that people try to police you mm-hmm. and control you and silence you. Right. That's very much socialized. And I think, you know, you asked the question of who gets to say, well, being that we are human beings that are in social spaces and some people have more power than others. There are certain kind of norms and stereotypes that get in our culture and that becomes kind of the uh, the hegemonic kind of ideal about what one should do or what one should feel. What I'm trying to get us to see is to see that, mm-hmm. but also resist that. Mm. Right. So even when we talk about, there's no such thing as the angry white man stereotype. Right. But there right? are so when many. When a white man is angry, <laughs> when a white man is angry, he's justified in his anger. Mm-hmm. But where does that come from? Why do we think that? Right. Well, men, men has always, you know, you think about the value that men has inherently been, been perceived to have because they were born with a penis, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. And so because they had this kind of high or hierarchical position, we have a tendency to think that men are valuable. And because they are valuable, they have certain claims to respect. Mm. And because they have certain cl- claims to respect, then when they are mistreated, then the apt and fitting response to that mistreatment is anger. So you think about Kavanaugh. Right. He was justified in his righteous indignation about these things that sure. were being done to him. And at the same time, Blasey Ford had to, mind you, she's the one accusing him. She has every right to be angry in that hearing, mm-hmm. but she has to silently and change her voice very meekly Mm -hmm. and position herself and orientate herself. And maybe perhaps they will accept her tears, Mm -hmm. but they will never accept her anger. That's social. Right. right? But what about the actual feelings of emotions? Right. Like, because you and I could experience something and feel about it differently and be Mm -hmm. feeling something in our bodies differently, Mm -hmm. but define it the same. Right. Right. Like how, like that sort of like, Like, because the social part of it is very clear, you know, it's like we Mm -hmm. see this time and again, like you said, angry black woman or, you know, the the ways that white women can weaponize their emotions. And like you talk about in the book about the Karening. But I'm wondering about like the actual feeling, because I think part of it is like because of the socialization, I never I rarely say that I'm angry. Mm-hmm. I try to find like another like, oh, I'm not angry. I'm feeling vulnerable or like I'm right. feeling like, right. I'm but I'm but I'm expressing anger. I'm just renaming it. So I guess like on a more like emotional. I had a boss that used to always say feelings aren't facts. Oh, my goodness. That's that's inaccurate. Well, it's that, also that just... so minimizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so. So for anyone who's ever said that, please know. Please no, please no, please no. And and let me just focus on anger. So there used to be kind of a a stereotype in scholarly literature up until like the 70s to suggest that anger is irrational. Mm. And then what people came to the conclusion, some smart people came to the conclusion, where anger arises because you have judged something to be wrong. Mm. You have evaluated the world in a certain kind of way. And in order to engage in that particular exercise, one uses one's rational capacities to do that. So if anger is a judgment that something is wrong, 
And there's no way that you can take any kind of deliberative process and call that deliberative exercise an irrational activity. That's mm. just irrational to say that. Right. right? Um, so let me just say that. But I would say this. I mean, even as you were asking a question, you can't help but throw the social in there. Right. right? So that's important. Yeah, certainly. But I would say for someone who's asking that question, from a very basic level, what emotions do? I mean, I, I talk about this in the second chapter of the book where I talk about um, to say that an emotion is appropriate or fitting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of language that you're suggesting. I mean, should I feel this way or what is it? You know, right. um, to say that an emotion is fitting, it has to just match this particular occasion. Right. So when we think about sadness, well, sadness is an appropriate response to a awful event, mm-hmm. traumatic event, traumatic event, et cetera, et cetera. One might even say happiness is an emotion that is fitting to a joyful, wonderful occasion, right? right? So much so that it would be odd to be happy that someone has died. Sure. Like that, that, that emotion doesn't fit the occasion. Sure. So when it comes to anger, it's so easy for us to think, I don't feel anger, I feel this other emotion, or I'm not right or justified to feel anger in this particular occasion. And I want to say, well, this is just a very simple formula. If that emotion is arising due to mistreatment and justice, something has gone wrong. Well, you may be feeling angry. That's a fitting emotion right. to that particular particular happening. And, and I want us, you know, in some way to not call it something else. Because here's the thing. So many other people is going to do that job for us. Mm. They're going to call it bitterness. Mm-hmm. They're going to call it hatred. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to call you a bitch. Right. Right. So I think the most powerful thing for you to do is claim, reclaim that for yourself. And I think that's what I'm trying to do in the book to get people to see your anger reactions is a fitting response. It's appropriate. You are justified in yeah. feeling this towards this particular situation and call it that. Yeah, I definitely think you do do that in the book. It, the book is very empowering just to read about the the ways, the transformative vision that you have and lay out for rage. I mean, you you cite I mean, it's not a vision. You cite instances throughout the book. Okay, this is sort of, I'm sort of flipping your whole book, though, on you right now. Sorry. And I I hate to do this, but I don't really. I'm excited. Because you just said, if you're feeling anger due to mistreatment. But there are so many white nationalists, racists, etc., who feel anger due to mistreatment. And they've Mm -hmm. built racism off of this anger. Is there a way to disarm that kind of rage? Is there Mm -hmm. a way to rationalize with that kind of rage, with those kinds of rage? Because in the book, there's multiple kinds that it could be like we mentioned wipe rage or narcissistic rage. You know, I don't want to minimize it because I know you have in detail talked about different versions of that. But it's not just people who are mistreated, who are affected by racism. Your book is focused on race, but you also mentioned that there's a there's a whole scholarship around feminism and rage. Um, We actually Mm -hmm. did Rebecca Traster's book on the podcast years ago. So, you know, we've talked about that in this space a little bit, but I'm wondering, like, how can how can Lordy and Rage, you know, on the Rage Olympics take down narcissistic <laughs> rage and like, you're like, what, what do we do? Right, right. So I have several responses. So I'm thinking what's happening in the case of, let's say, a racist who feel like he's being mistreated. Well, we got it. We got to investigate that. <laughs> right. right. Because it could be I mean, anger has to fit the event of mistreatment, right? Mm -hmm. And if it does, we can say it's a fitting, appropriate response, right, to have. But if there's no such mistreatment happening, Mm. right, then one can still feel anger, but we would just say that that anger is inappropriate, Mm. right? It's misguided. It's 
directed at the wrong target? What is wrong in their assessment of things? Mm -hmm. Right. Because I think a a lot of times, I mean, anytime you are, are, are engaging in an ism of some sort, as much as you are engaged in what I would say is is kind of a moral failure of sorts, you are also engaged, and I'm going to kind of probably use a scholarly term here, in an epistemic failure of sorts. You you are interpreting the world in inaccurate ways. Mm. Um, and what I try to do, and I think this is, this is in the case in this, of the second chapter, is to show that one of the things that Lording and Rage has over these other kinds of, of rages is that we have all the receipts. <laughs> <laughs> that what we are responding to is indeed something that is happening in the world, mm. right? And so one way perhaps you can disarm in some way is facts. Facts, I mean, we talked about feelings aren't, aren't facts, but facts can change feelings, mm-hmm. right? Because if your, your feelings is in response to misinformed facts, right? That if we give you accurate facts, then your emotions can also change. So, so here's an example. If I feel that you have stolen something from me, I'm going to be angry. Mm-hmm. But if I find out you didn't steal it, you just left it in my in my closet, then I have no reason to be. The facts have changed or give me reasons to change my feelings. Right. And as much as as much as I read something earlier today about critical race theory and how people were saying, hey, these people don't care about the facts. Eh, I don't know. I don't want to say that no one cares about the facts. I think a lot of people honestly believe that they have them. Right. And they are right in what they have. Right. And so I never want to say that we shouldn't fight that knowledge, that knowledge thing. So that, that's one way I would say that, that knowledge has the power to kind of transform that. But, you know, it's a constant fight. I mean, I don't think I have any, any details as far as how the Lordian rage can override the other forms of rage. All I want to say is that it should match it. Right. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. This is about something that's sort of in the news. Are you familiar with what's going on with Aaron Rodgers right now? Yes. So he's, he's coming hard hard in the narcissistic rage camp, I would say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, he's been wronged. He feels though. I think us of the Lordy and rage side might say, in fact, you've actually wronged your teammates and your team and your community. But you know, that would be the fact that I would say, but I guess my question about something like that is like, if you take the facts to a narcissistic rager, my experience is that the rage doesn't always listen. You know, like if right. you if I if you think I stole something from you and you're freaking out at me and I'm like, Maisha, here's your ring. Like I didn't take it. Sometimes like the embarrassment takes over and fuels the rage, you know? And like mm-hmm. do you do you have any sense that it is worth I a lot of times people be like you need to calm down before and you talk about that a little bit in the ally section. Do you find that that's valuable? Like do you find that it is possible to communicate effectively when someone is in the throes of rage? Yeah. I mean, I think about the Aaron Rodgers case, it's lacking not only kind of a misassessment of what's happening here, like he thinks he's been mistreated, but it's also lacking that other piece, that inclusive piece that I was talking about, that kind of perspective of Mm -hmm. inclusiveness. And I think one of the things that I've seen throughout this pandemic is that people really think that they, they are island all to themselves. <laughs> right. And they honestly believe that their individual behaviors affect no one else but themselves. Mm. Like, if I want to do this, let me just do this to myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that beyond just being wrong in the assessment of mistreatment, I think, and I don't know if it's an American thing, but this individualism yeah. to suggests that my being in the world has no impact on others. is not only wrong, mm-hmm. But it's become kind of an American religion. Yeah. 
And one is correct in the sense that there's no way that facts can change that perspective. Right. I honestly believe it requires something a little bit more. It requires kind of a moral transformation of seeing how one sees oneself in relationship to others. Mm. And if Jesus can't save them, I mean, maybe someone in their lives that's loving, that's compassionate, can <laughs> perhaps show them and change their perspective in that, in that particular regard. But then I think a lot of things really come down to not just facts, but we're faced a moral and spiritual crisis yeah. in that era. And I think only moral calls and spiritual transformations can really persuade people out of the destructive kind of rage. And until we get there, and I'm, and I'm saying that's a toolkit. That's something. That's a tool in our toolkit. Until we get there, we can focus on the kind of rage that we have in response to their ignorance and their harm, yeah. and engage in productive action to kind of undo the harms that they have done. And hopefully, they will come to our side and transform that themselves. Um, but it's just an unfortunate. It's, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, I feel like just hearing you talk about that, it made me think. In the last few years, especially with COVID, I feel like. The Lordian rage side, the left, not the whole left, but people who are engaging in this work, right? I feel like there's been a call of more coming together. Like we're seeing these strikes, these worker strikes, people right. organizing together. Mm-hmm. You know, we obviously saw last summer during the George Floyd protests, like people physically coming together. And I feel like on the other side, the people who are perpetuating racism and creating racism, I feel like we are seeing a more and more individualistic situation where it's like me, 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 my, my, my. And I think that that probably can be attributed somewhat to the Lordian rage because it's saying, you know, I'm not free until we're all free and that we have to all come together and organize together. So that definitely speaks to sort of a huge part of your your thesis in your book. I wonder about outcome and intention a little bit. I think about like, you say it in the book, you can have a bad outcome with Lordian rage, right? Like you can do things that are are destructive and you can also have a good outcome with a wipe rage situation, perhaps. Is that, does that matter? Like, how do we navigate that? Yeah, yeah. So I think it may have been a misreading of sorts. Okay, um, that's I fine. Think, I do I that think... a lot. So please correct me. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is good. This is good. So then I can, then I can kind of clear it up. And I think, I think one of the things that I was responding to is that some individuals might think that what it is to have this kind of virtuous anger is to become this perfect human being. Mm. That whenever one is angry, one is always going to be perfect and do these particular kinds of things. And I want to say that in the same individual, the same individual can have Lordian rage and they're engaging in productive action. The same person can also have this kind of awful rage in which they may be engaging in very destructive actions. And I'm talking about when I say awful rage, I say awful rage in regards to being an awful partner at home. Mm. Could be misusing that rage in a very detrimental way. One might say that may be characteristic of a lot of our leaders in the last few centuries, mm-hmm. that they were, have, they were able to have virtuous elements in a political context but had a different kind of anger in other kinds of contexts. And I want to allow for that, right? Because I think with that, not only allow for it, but acknowledge that that is the case. But what I'm trying to show in that point, I know that that was an extreme example. What I'm trying to show is that who you need to be to have this virtuous anger is not this perfect individual. Although I will hope (laughs) that if you really love people, you know what I mean? You're You're not doing the lot of stuff that I just alluded to. So that's one of the things that I was concerned about. 
But I want to, if, if it's fine, Tracy, I want to go back to another point yeah. that my lack of coffee failed to address. Okay, go ahead. And I think one of the things, one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, how can you, how can Lordian rage kind of respond to this other kind of rage that's happening? It made me think uh, Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, came oh, to mind. So good. And one of the things that she lays out, she says, listen, a, a lot of people are afraid of the rage of protesters, black protesters for, for racial justice. And he says, you know what? Well, you know what the country really needs to be concerned about? as far as what can bring down our country, is white rage. Mm-hmm. Because it has been the rage of white people that have undone the liberal creed that we hold ourselves to so dearly. So they have undone equality and liberty. And she begins a historical analysis from like Reconstruction up to today. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that comes to mind is when she begins to talk about Obama, and she talks about when Obama got elected, a lot of Republicans had a meeting that night, mm-hmm. angry about the election, they got together and started to strategize. Mm-hmm. And when I see white rage at, at work, it's easy for us to think about January the 6th mm-hmm. because we have a tendency to think that people who showed up in January 6th is a certain kind of white person. So we can easily dismiss that um, as a, a hick, for example, mm-hmm. or an uneducated, you know, and all these jokes and all this stuff that was done that feeds into this narrative that the only white people that are angry are poor, uneducated white people. Mm-hmm. And white people in positions of power have, and that anger has been used to roll back a lot of stuff. And what our ancestors have done to respond to that is to keep mobilizing, Mm -hmm. keep organizing, keep fighting, keep loving each other, keep protecting ourselves. And I think they show as a good role model of what we should continue to do. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is going to be very different in different contexts. But going back to a point that I made made later is just to try to meet it. I mean, you don't, we, we don't know to what degree, but just continue to embrace the anger that we have and continue to use it, continue to get in solidarity with others. And, and hopefully in time, yeah, it can overpower the white, white rage that has always existed in this country. Right. I think about you talking about, you know, like poor white rage. And it makes me think about sort of what happened after the 2016 election. And it was this whole conversation about like rural white voters, even though the exit polls showed that (laughs) Trump won with white voters of every economic group, every educational group, every uh, metropolitan group or rural group. And it's just like this, this lie about, again, who can be angry? Poor white people can be angry. Rural white people can be angry, but rich white people, they're not angry. They're just voting for their taxes or they're just (laughs) voting, you know, like there's always an excuse for the rich white elite, if you will. Also speaking, let's keep talking about white people. Let's talk about some (laughs) allies because one of the things I wrote this down and I usually put a page number and go back and look, but of course I didn't put a page number for this, but I wrote down the opposite of rage is respectability. Did you say that Mm -hmm. or did I interpret? I mean, I could have. Okay. I'm going to say you said it because it doesn't sound, I don't feel like that is my level of intelligence to write that down. So (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and say that was a you thing. But I want to talk about respectability and allies. And in this case, again, we're talking about allies to racial injustice and racism. You meant you lay this out in the book. I just want to be really clear because in the book you lay out that that's what you're talking about, but that anger can be used in other movements. Um, so in this case, we're, we're talking, I think, mostly about, depending on the kind of racism, we're talking mostly about white people and then other ethnic and racial groups that aren't the people receiving the racism. Right. So like right. earlier this year when there was the violence against um, different groups of Asian people, 
that would include black people as allies. Right. When we're talking about the violence against George Floyd and the unarmed black people, that would include Latine folks as allies. So just right. to be clear, the whoever the ally is can can rotate in this case. So you talk about how allies can get in the way of progress, um, especially when it comes to rage and sort of tone policing and respectability, and that this isn't a reflection of the value of the rage, but of the allies' inability to empathize. And that is a quote I took from you from the book. That I know is you. That was real okay. good. <laughs> I want you to kind of talk a little bit more about that because I know that the people who listen to this podcast even if they don't say they're allies, feel that they are in allyship uh, with racial injustice. I, I just don't think you can listen to this podcast and not feel that way. Um, I hope, unless I'm really off base. But I want you to talk to them and us and talk about, you know, the ways that we're fucking up when we think that we're helping. Right. So I, I'm, I'm inspired by a lot of literature from activists and, and journalists on this topic of how allies can behave badly. And I'm even aware of kind of the controversy in the terminology, right? Mm -hmm. um, that even the term itself implies or one might think that they don't really have anything in the fight. They're just helping others. So let's call it by another term. And I, I can see that. I understand the debate. And so I just use allies just so we can have a, a good sense of what we're referring to, right? Having um, those who are not directly experiencing the mistreatment, but want to want to make sure uh, that they're doing their part to alleviate it. In the, in the, in the book, I call these individuals rage renegades mm -hmm. and so good. these are particularly white folk. And, and the reason why I call them rage renegades is because I basically simply say that although they live in a racist society that was meant to benefit them, they show outrage at such a society. And in the way they kind of resist uh, that particular society as a result. And I engage the literature on how, how allies can mess up. But one of the things that I try to do in relationship to that particular chapter is lay out the ways in which allies can mess up with their anger. Because mm -hmm. that's a very, you know, kind of, I think, different argument, right? How can they mess up with this particular anger? Because one might think, oh, I have anti-racist anger. I have this virtuous anger. Mm -hmm. I have the anger that, Lord and Ray, that Audre Lorde talked about. I'm good. I mean, I have the rage. There's no way I can mess up. And right. I want to say, yeah, with that, with that rage particularly, you can mess up. So there's a variety of, of, of things that people can do. So one thing I say is one way that you can cause harm. And not necessarily one might say in, in certain instances, either cause harm by what you do, cause harm about what you assume and what you believe, because I think there's a variety of ways in which you can mess up. So one thing I think people, a uh, way in which rage renegading can go wrong is that when an ally think that because they, they share or they have the same anger of a black person, they now know what it feels to be oppressed. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> right? I'm angry too. I understand. Right. right. So they're basically suggesting that because they feel this anger, that they, you know, they kind of really knows what it means. And one might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, if you know what it means to be oppressed, you don't need to listen to oppressed people anymore. Mm -hmm. You can be like Portland Wall of Moms. Mm. You just do your own thing. And as opposed to asking black folks what they need, what kind of help they need, what kind of allyship they need, you just make these assumptions about what they need. Mm -hmm. And when you start doing that, you start getting in the way of their own agential capacities and you start disrespecting them as a result. Right. So it can continue to go down a rabbit hole there. Another thing that I think rage renegades can do. And this is this is this is, a, a, I think, one of the probably I think the most tempting of all things that can go wrong. And that is, is when they think that their anger matters more mm -hmm. than the racially oppressed. Now, recall a while ago in our conversation, I talked about when I talked about Brett Kavanaugh and I thought, talked about if you're, if you're a white man, you will think that you have inherent value because the world has just told you that you do. Mm -hmm. 
And you think when you're mistreated, you're going to respond. Uh, you're going to feel like you've been disrespected. You're going to respond to anger. Well, you think that's going to change in an in a anti-racist context? Right. right. You're used to people listening to your anger. Right. You're used to people saying that, you know, uh, yes, you have been, you know, disrespected or or we're going to listen to what you have to say. And when you put that in an anti-racist context, it's easy to think, well, yeah, I understand you're angry, but because I'm angry, this really makes it the cause of all causes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so I basically say, well, you know, what happens is you're reinforcing or you're reifying the same kind of racist assumptions um, in which you're trying to get rid of through by joining the anti-racist struggle. And then another thing that I that I say that a way that rage mitigating can go wrong can happen by grandstanding. So I call it moral anger grandstanding. Yeah. Where you think that because you're white and you have anger, then that therefore makes you better than that other white liberal or even blacker mm-hmm. than that black person whose anger is not as strong as yours. Right. So what you start doing is you start having, you know, holding those people in contempt or thinking that you're morally better. And I'm trying to say, well, that's the same strategy that racists have employed, mm-hmm. right? You create a distinction between people who are morally superior, and morally inferior, and how people ought to be treated. And that's the same kind of racial kind of processes that happen with racism. And then I talk about white saverism, where you think your anger is going to save the day. Right. And without it, white people, black people can't be free. So just trying to unpack all those ways that even when you're like sincerely joining the cause and you really, there's some temptations that can happen specifically with your feelings that we need to be forever conscious of and constantly check for ourselves to make sure that we're not doing the same kind of harms that we're fighting against. Just hearing you lay that all out, I, I was reading your book this week um, when when the election happened. And what you, the last one you said, the moral grandstanding, it reminded me of this tweet from John Lovett, who's one of the Pods of America guys. He tweeted, well, I hope this serves as a wake-up call for everyone. And it was like, but it came, you could tell it came from a place of anger. Like he was really pissed about right, it. Right. But it was that moral grandstanding of like, well, I knew better. And, you know, I'm mad about this. And I hope all of you idiots who aren't, who don't care. And, and my response, of course, was like, there are people who these outcomes are going to affect way more deeply than you, white guy in California, Mm-hmm. Who don't think you're very fucking funny. Like, it's not right. funny. It's not cute. But it's that same thing of like this ownership of the rage that like I get to feel right. angry and therefore I get to decide what is right and wrong around these things. Um, right. I mean, and then and then the temptation, the temptation is that you become louder yes. and you begin to drown out voices. Right. And he and has that platform too. Like these. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then another thing, another thing that happens is what you're doing is you're using all the energy for grandstanding mm-hmm. and there's nothing left to use it to motivate one to engage in productive action. Right. And according to Audre Lorde's words, that is a waste of energy. Yeah. So the energy is being misdirected. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about your process. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? 
With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay. We're back from our break. Process, process, process. Here we go. My favorite stuff. I love this shit. Okay. So first of all, I want to know what was easy for you about writing this book and what was more difficult? Wow. <laughs> or mm, was it all horrible wow. and difficult? <laughs> wow. What was easy? I mean, the thing that was easy was knowing that I needed to write it. Mm. Um, it's something that's been bothering me since Trayvon Martin was murdered. Sure. And, uh, seeing people's responses, anger responses, but also seeing pundits' criticisms mm -hmm. and respectability politics being kind of preached upon us. And so what was easy was knowing that this is something that I needed to write. That was very clear and very easy. I think writing is, writing is hard. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, as, a, as, a, as a philosopher, particularly kind of philosophy that I do, is that in our, in our profession, we don't necessarily write books that much. We write articles. And so if I have anything to say, I can say it in 8,000 words and then I move on to the next academic article. I see. And so trying to figure out what is going to be kind of the consistent argument that I, I want to make over 65,000 words. Mm -hmm. And that's always a challenge because I'm so used to doing it in 8,000 and trying to figure out what are, what are, you know, this is argument that I want to make, but what are the kind of premises mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that are most important in, in, in trying to persuade people of my particular argument? So that, that process is always difficult, like the flow of, okay, this chapter, and then that will lead us to this chapter. And then once you have this grasp of this particular concept, then we can move to this. That's always hard. Now, when I look back at the book, I'm like, of course, this flows. Right, 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 right. right. Let's start off with the different kinds of anger. And then let's just talk about how this anger is fitting. And then we can talk about how it's motivational and use examples of how it's motivation. And then we can talk about how <laughs> having it, you can be a resistant figure. And then we can spend the last two chapters talking about how, how to do better with it. Right. But all that's never clear in the beginning. Right, right. So that's always, that's always difficult. I think another, 
Another difficult thing, and I was explaining this to some students at Hofstra when I was talking to them this week, and they asked me about process and kind of a similar question. And I basically told them one of the hardest things that I did that uh, was writing about the personal in the introduction and in the conclusion. Because as an academic person, although I have a, you know, I write op-eds, I never talk about myself. Right. Just never. No one knows my life story except my friends. I'm a very private person. And so having to like think about, oh, the time that the first time that I was called the N-word, I felt vulnerable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also going back there to kind of add adult insight to the situation that happened to me was kind of tough. It was kind of tough. So I think those those personal parts were, were hard. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. And then there's also this feeling that, well, I hope I wrote the best book that I could write at the time. <laughs> and that's just something that you just don't know if you yeah. if you've if you've done. That's always the insecurity for me too. Is this the best I could do <laughs> in the moment? Okay. In your acknowledgments, you mentioned your grad students helping you with the book. And I'm curious what that process looks like. Are you all reading texts together and like discussing it? Mm -hmm. Are you posing them questions that you're kind of thinking through and asking for collaboration? Like, how does that work? So one of the benefits, so I have this, this selling point that I try to do with all of my friends who are writers. And I always tell them, listen, I know you love writing, but please try to be a professor. Mm. And your professor life not only do you have like a steady check and so like <laughs> you can be your true authentic self in the books that you decide to write as opposed to just writing for money, but you have, an, you have a constant audience. Mm. You have a constant think tank that you, can, that you can rely on. So the ways in which this happened. So I started writing a book right when I was wrapping up my PhD in 2018. That's when I drafted my first chapter. But I went into my first job in the fall of 2018. So knowing that, you know, for the next year and a half or so, I would be writing this book. And so the first, the graduate seminar that I taught, it was a graduate seminar, PhD students, was on anger. And so, I, you know, selfishly, because this is what professors right. do, for, particularly for graduate seminars, I'm going to teach what I'm currently thinking okay. and what I'm currently writing. And what I'm going to, of course, I want to expose my students to the literature, but I want to think with my students about these particular concerns. Mm. So the way that the semester was laid out is that, you know, at the end of the book, you have uh, the bibliography. They read a lot of that stuff. And we thematically kind of address these issues. Mm. And so for, we're in the quarter system. So for the first eight weeks, they got accustomed to, okay, what are people saying about anger? What have people said about anger in the last years or so? Um, So they had the opportunity to hear people's different arguments and different takes on it. And then the last couple of weeks, and this is on the syllabus, we will workshop my very drafty chapters of the book. (laughs) Now that you all are semi-experts now, you've read a lot. Now, it's time for you to, to look at some work that's in development and given what you know, what is weak? Right. What is strong? Oh my God. What questions do you have? How humbling needs to for be you. <laughs> so, so, so here's also the thing. I think, I think as an academic, I mean, we know going back to the people thinking that they are island within themselves and this religion, religion of individuality. We know that scholarship, particularly I think a lot of scholars of color know, um, the scholarship doesn't originate out of a smart person being in a room all by themselves and coming up with something right. that's going to change the world. Um, we know that it happens as a result of being in conversation with colleagues, going to workshops, going to presentations, and that's how you make your work better. Mm-hmm. So because I have thick skin in that regard, right. and what was most important is creating a book that will resonate not just with people with PhDs, but people my students' age, 
Mm-hmm. That was very important for me to hear their perspective on how to make how to make the book better. So I found it to be a privilege to hear what they had to say. And, and of course, you know, they're like, oh, you're our professor. We can't say right. you weren't here. Maybe we will really go in. Yeah. But I, 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 you know, I really let them know. I was like, listen, I need to make this book great. Right. How can you help me make it great? Right. Um, and they they were able to meet meet that challenge. So I had to shout them out in the book. I love that. I love reading acknowledgments. I, I mentioned this to you before. My sister-in-law is a professor and she talks about how with her syllabus, every semester it changes on what she's working through. And she'll right. she'll make sure to assign certain texts that she wants to have conversations about out loud. And I always joke that that sort of reminds me of this podcast because I started it because I wanted to be <laughs> able to talk about the books I wanted to talk about in the ways I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about them. And it's sort of that call for like community around thinking and, and in my case, literature and in your case, you know, philosophy and scholarship. And I love that. Um, okay. How do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often? Do you have music or not? Are you in your home? Are you on the road? Uh, do you like? Do you have snacks and beverages? Rituals? Let me know. I know you're a runner, so I'm curious how that sort of plays in because you had that in your acknowledgments too. <laughs> I am a weird. Let me just say this: I'm a very weird person. Okay, love so a weirdo. My habits may not match. My habits may not match everybody else's. Everyone on the podcast (laughs) says this. Literally every author is like, I know I do this different than everyone else. And I'm like, yes, everyone does it different. I'm at like episode 200 and everyone is different. I promise. Okay. So I want to say that the way that I approach this is I realized that I am privileged in the sense that I witnessed my mother working part-time jobs all her life, working several jobs at a time to make sure she supported me and my sister. Um, so I know what a hard working day looks like. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I'm privileged in the sense that I don't have to do the kinds of hard work that she engaged in, the kind that would just manual and all this other stuff. Um, and I realized that economically <laughs> I'm doing well in that particular regard, but I still have a respect for working class work ethic. Mm. And I believe that there's a lot that we can learn from poor, poor working class people mm-hmm. about how to be and how to, uh, how to work. And so although my job pays me a lot of money and I don't have to leave the house twice a week, I wake up 4.30 every morning. Whew. I meditate and journal, um, listen to a few jazz albums. I'm a jazz fanatic. Um, have my coffee. Um, and then I read for two hours. And about by 7 o'clock, I'm highly caffeinated, <laughs> highly inspired to write, and I get at my computer, do the Pomodoro method, so I write for 40 minutes, and then take a seven-minute break. Write for 40 minutes, take a seven-minute break. Um, I have a tendency to think that around 12 or 1 o'clock, the return of investment goes down, mm-hmm. and so I like to wrap up my, my writing day with that. Um, I don't believe in having a heavy breakfast okay. um, because I want... Uh, the most energy that I can have in the day. So I believe in, in, in the kind of, kind of snacks that kind of feed your brain. Okay. So oatmeal, okay. almonds, even a little bit of, uh, of chocolate. Okay. Thank this you. Is all Speaking brain my food. language, chocolate. Finally, <laughs> I know that you're friends this with Jason Reynolds. Yes. That's how I came yes. to you. And he is my mortal enemy when it comes to snacks because he's like, I eat cucumbers. <laughs> and so when you started with oatmeal and almonds, I was like, Oh my God, this is why they're friends. What a freak. <laughs> But you came around with chocolate. I'm sure you're going to tell me dark chocolate, you know, zero percent chocolate, sugar. of course, because I'm vegan. 
Ah, okay. This is this is it. This is I don't I don't I, I want to be energized. I need my brain and lots of water. Water. And so it's okay. like, it's more like okay, what does my brain? What does my what kind of what does my body? What's the state of my body needs to be in, in order to allow me to think very very clearly and to persevere even when I when something challenging is going to happen, which mm. is going to happen. Right. And I think uh, you know science just shows us that kind of food works. Yeah. And not having a heavy stomach um, works. Um, it used to be the case that I would work out before I wrote and I just realized that a way to kind of gift myself out of this state of just being still is to reward myself with a workout after I write. Mm. But that stuff has a, you know, taking breaks, water, a little bit of coffee, brain okay. food, that stuff works. I just started doing Pomodoro. I do 25 and 5, but I sort of think 40 and 7 sounds better for me. 25 feels really short to me. Yeah, it's just short, too short for me. Yeah, I just yeah. started like a month ago and I like it, but it's too short. I'm going to switch today when I go do work. Okay, I forgot to ask you this and I'm very interested and you brought it up a little bit about starting the book in 2018 in the fall. How did 2020 summer change the book for you? Oh my gosh. I, that was my first question Man. I wrote down and for some reason I just didn't ask yeah. it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Tracy. There was a moment where I felt, I, I can't really put it into words. But I felt, because at this point it was with the it was with it was out for review okay. at this time, and so in it the the book is published by Oxford University Press, um, and although um, it's a trade book, it's also kind of also it's at the University Press, and so it goes through a process in which it has to be reviewed. People are like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> but it has to it has right. it, it goes through a very different process than trade books, and I just remember when twenty twenty was happening. I don't think there's an emotion to kind of describe this, but I felt like. Oh my God, where's my book? Oh my God, where's my book? Mm-hmm. Like my book needs to like mm-hmm. get into the hands of these people at mm-hmm. this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it was kind of like this feeling like, oh, I, ha- I have a way to help. Mm. But like, I can't really fully help mm-hmm. in the way because it has to go through this process. Thing. Right, 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 right. So in some ways, I, and, and as a scholar, I think my role in the struggle is scholarship. Right. I mean, that's what I do, right. scholarship and, and, and being an educator. And, and, I, and I just felt at, at that moment what I wasn't doing my role hmm. because the way the processes were, were set up um, kind of prohibit me from, from doing that full role. And I did write op-eds for The Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. But I really wanted people to have, to have the book. Right. And not to sell it, not to be on the New Times bestseller, not to like be a part of this anti-racism, like consumerism, thing. materialistic yeah. thing. No, like... I wanted to do my job. Right. Right. Which is to equip people that were on the ground to silence people who were just afraid of anger and telling people to be quiet. I felt like I had something to say for the moment uh, that will trans- change people's minds, um, help people deal with the shame that they were feeling in regard to the emotion, laying out what people can do about it. I just, I, so I felt weird in that particular sense. But it was also as frustrating as it was. It was just a reminder that the more things, I mean, I say this in the conclusion, the more things change, the more things stays the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, like I said, I started thinking about this book in 2012. And it's like these things just keep happening. So the the book was sparked in 2012. And these moments keep happening Mm -hmm. in which I can't let this topic go. Mm -hmm. And for the market, that may sound good for some people. But for someone who's committed to freedom and some kind of progress, I just, I was heartbroken. I would say that, 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 that what happened in 2020 Gave me more exemplars to include in the book. Sure, more examples of some of the things that I was that I was thinking of and conceiving of to put in the book, and so I think it, it made the book richer in the sense that I just had more to draw on 
comments that were said in the news by people who perhaps wasn't given a voice six years ago. Things that I was witnessing in the culture, the solidarity that I was feeling, it was very distinct from originally when Black Lives Matter was excited. Because mm-hmm. you remember yeah. Trayvon Martin, people were afraid to say it. And now corporations, which was different in 2020, corporations had embraced it. Right. Right. Were they, were they rage renegades? You know, right. like, so, so it led me to kind of think very differently. Um, and I think it, it informed the book, but heartbreaking none the least. Right. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, your book is sort of an evergreen book up to this point. That's the sad part about it. Yeah, that's the part that sucks. But it's like, I'm thinking, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about the trial that's going on for the people who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. And like that felt very prescient as I was reading it. Also, what's going on with Kyle Rittenhouse's trial and Mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm, language that's being allowed. Like, so even (sighs) though it isn't, you know, the George Floyd moment, these other moments, like I didn't for a minute think like this book is late. You know, I was like, oh, this book is right on time. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Okay. I just have a few more questions. This one's a pretty easy one, but it's important because you're a smarty. What's a word you can (laughs) never spell right on the first try? You know, there's a lot of words I can't spell. There's also a lot of words I can't say. Oh, Um, I blame, I I really blame growing up in, in the Southern part of Virginia for this. A word that I can't spell. Unfortunately, I can't spell misogyny. Oh, hard. Very hard. I just can't get it Very right. Hard. Wait, what are um, words you can't say? I'm so curious. 11. 11? The number after 10? Yeah, yeah. I said 11. 11. 11. I don't know what you said. So I grew up saying 11. 11. Yeah, 11. Wow, I've never 11, heard that. 11. 11. That 11, 11. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I love this. I love this. There are so many words that I mispronounce because I only learned them from reading. So it's like, right. I don't, I'm like, what? Like, sometimes I'll hear someone say a word. I'll be like, mm, that's not how I say that. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay. You mentioned in your process that you wake up early and then you read for two hours. Are you reading academic texts? Are you reading for pleasure? Oh. Are you re- like, what are you reading? So, yeah, that. Okay. So that practice is very seriously because or I take that practice very seriously. I read in those moments. I consider myself reading for pleasure. Okay. But pleasure is iffy because I just think that being a human in the world, what we think we're processing for enjoyment or simply mm-hmm. just for knowledge simpliciter, that's not how the world shaped. Mm-hmm. I will have to, I'm going to have to recall that stuff one day. Mm. Um, the way it makes me feel is going to lead me to do kinds of different things in the world. Um, and it's always going to inform my work. Like, so you'll notice in the book, there's a lot of SNL examples. Mm-hmm. Of course, I watch SNL for pleasure. Right. Right, right, right. Right. But it's stored in my head because I know perhaps for work I would have to use this attire for a reason. So but I like to say that I'm u- using it for pleasure. Uh-huh. Um, I sit in a very different room when I when I read. I have a, a room dedicated to reading. Mm. Good old Eames chair for relaxing. <laughs> Original, by the way, for relaxing <laughs> um, while reading. But they're, they're pleasure reading. So they're not uh, they're not academic books. They're not academic books. Yeah. So nonfiction okay. and fiction. Yeah. And then for people who love your book, The Case for Rage, what are a few books you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation, in the same vein, that might inspire them or excite them? Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. Oh, so good. I mean, you already, Rage Becomes Her. Mm, I haven't read that yet. Killing Rage, Bell Hooks Collection of Essays. Of course, The Fire Next Time, James mm-hmm. Baldwin. I mean, if, if, if a person want to know, there's a, there's a philosopher that I engage in throughout the book and people perhaps want to know who is this and what is their argument that I seem to be so against mm-hmm. Martha Nussbaum's anger and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And her argument is the opposite of the argument that I'm making. And so if okay. people just want to be familiar with those kinds of arguments in more detail, they should go to that. But that is that's the literature that I'm engaged in. 
I love it. Okay, last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? I wonder what Adjulor would say about it. Mm. Yeah, I do yeah. too. So that's that's someone famous, famous. Okay. Um, but my mother, my mother's deceased, but I wish she was alive to read it. Maisha, mm-hmm. uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your scholarship with us. Um, for folks at home, the book is out in the world. You can get it wherever you get your books. It is called The Case for Rage. Maisha, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tracy. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Maisha for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Gabriel Kachik for making this interview possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you love the show and want inside access, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas. 